0: In John chapter 5, Jesus was in another one of his encounters with the Pharisees who were demonstrating their disbelief in him. And so Jesus went on to give them four witnesses of uh, of himself, people people and things that had testified to who he was. Uh, He spoke of the Father testifying of who he is. He spoke of John the Baptist testifying of who he is. He spoke of the scriptures testifying of who he is. And he spoke of Moses as testifying of who he is. And he essentially was saying that if you had believed these four witnesses, you would have believed me. Um, But the tragedy is, and really uh, one of the uh, uh, really kind of cryptic warning that Jesus gives them in the midst of this is found in in chapter 5, verse 43. I'm going to read it here, actually, where Jesus in the midst of this discussion says to them that I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now this warning is gonna ultimately find its realization in the arrival of Antichrist, who as Daniel tells us in chapter nine, verse 27, will sign a covenant with them for a seven year period of time, uh, which will allow them to um, um, uh, rejoin their practice of the offerings and sacrifices and that. They'll they'll have a rebuilt temple, the scriptures tell us, uh, in which to serve and which um, they'll be able to practice their religion once again. Uh, they're going to receive him as their Messiah. In other words, they've rejected the true Messiah, and they will receive a false Messiah. Uh, Jesus said this would be indicative of the last times, is that there would be many false Christs and such claiming to be him. And that, well, Israel will latch on to the one who the Bible calls the Antichrist, and that's what I'd like to spend some time looking at uh, this person, this uh, this entity known as the Antichrist. I'd like to spend time. Uh, looking at who he is, what he's about, all those kinds of things, things he'll do. Uh, And I'd like to take the next couple of episodes, maybe two or three, uh, to discuss this uh, in our part of our, again, our larger study in eschatology and and how I uh, personally, how I think things will pan out. Um, So that being said, uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter seven to begin. Um, But I want to point out that this person of Antichrist is known by a number of different titles. Uh, he is not spoken of just in the New Testament. Usually, we think of Antichrist. We're thinking, okay, well, here's a term that John uses. Here's a term that um, refers to someone that we see pretty much in the New Testament. But it's important for us to recognize that this person is actually referred to in the in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. And he goes by a number of different names and titles. Uh, for example, in the Book of Revelation, which we probably most often associate with the idea of Antichrist. Um, he is just as often, and more often really, called the Beast. Uh, he is known as the first Beast. Uh, there is a second Beast, and that second Beast is a person that is also called the False Prophet. Now both of these beasts are not working uh, independently uh, of of anything else. They are actually empowered fully by Satan himself, who is referred to as the Dragon in Revelation 13 and elsewhere. But um, but this is sort of this unholy trinity that is at work in the last days. But the primary figure in this activity is one called the Antichrist. We call him Antichrist. John again in First John refers to the Antichrist. He also refers to a spirit of Antichrist and that kind of thing. But there is an actual person who is going to be in the role of Antichrist in the last days. And I want to start with that because there is there are sometimes attempts made to sort of um, to sort of uh, make the Antichrist uh, more of a system of some kind than a person, uh, and I, I, I think that is uh, a misreading of the text in scripture. I think it's possible for us to take anything in scripture and find something that has some connection or similarity to that idea, and sort of then, sort of impr- you know, imprint that on that idea. Uh, but the Antichrist uh, is a person. Uh, he's referred to as he. Uh, The activities that he engages in are personal. Um, At one point, he is killed and he comes back to life. You could try to make that fit into some metaphorical kind of a context, but I think, again, that's a misreading. I think it does damage to our understanding of what is intended to be seen in this. Um, For example, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7 to start this uh, walkthrough and our look at the Antichrist. But uh, when we get our full picture of the Antichrist, we realize that Antichrist is intended to be seen as a person who stands in the place of Christ in the minds of the people of the world. And so if we change that to a system, I think we lose something very important, uh, a lot of very important things in our understanding of the description of this person. So that being said, uh, we're going to start by looking into the book of Daniel, uh, and that's going to require, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. But it's going to require me to set set the stage a little bit here. So in my effort to keep our studies at about 20 or so minutes, I think I've gotten as close as 25 on one of these. So, But my effort, my uh, desire is to get it to about 20 minutes or so, which means there's no way we're going to cover all this in one setting and do it meaningfully. So we're going to take a, at least a couple of episodes. Um, so the book of Daniel, as uh, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know that it's a book that is filled with prophetic insight. God has spoken to Daniel uh, via the angel Gabriel. Um, uh, Daniel gains understanding of things via visions given to others that he interprets and that kind of thing. But it's a book that focuses heavily on apocalyptic uh, writing and apop- apocalyptic prophecy. Uh, the idea of apocalypse, uh, the apocalypse is that of an unveiling. The idea of, try- of making something known that was previously hidden. And so uh, in Daniel Chapter Seven, we see the description of a series of events that are going to take place that revolve around a series of leaders or countries uh, and or leaders of countries that ultimately culminate in a particular leader who will bring together uh, essentially all nations uh, against the Lord and against his anointed in the last days. Uh, we know that Daniel's prophecies, by and large, have a lot to do with the last days because he's told on a couple of occasions to seal these things up until the end or these things pertain to the end and that kind of thing. So the bulk of what Daniel has to uh, is writing about has to do with the last days. Not all of it. Some of it deals in specific with some of the kingdoms prior to the, uh, the last days. But by and large, they all have something to do with the last days and connecting to it. So that being said, um, the vision that we'll read about in Daniel chapter seven, which I'm realizing probably won't happen until next time, uh, is a vision that is uh, that is very strongly connected to a, another vision that was given to somebody else. In Daniel chapter two, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, when Daniel and his three friends are taken into captivity, uh, Israel's taken into captivity, but Daniel and his three friends are seen as some of the finest among uh, the Israelites, and so they are taken in, and they are groomed to basically serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court as among his advisors. This would have been a practice of Nebuchadnezzar, who, uh, and, and not just Nebuchadnezzar, others uh, other kingdoms as they would conquer kingdoms, would take some of those who were wise in the ways of those kingdoms, and use them as advisors uh, to counsel him in matters having to do with those countries. And so Daniel and his three friends in this fashion are taken uh, ultimately to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Well, when their time comes, um, uh, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a vision. And it's a vision of an image that is a statue of a a man, but the various parts of this statue are built out of various degrees, uh, various kinds of metals of varying degrees of value. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, for example, in verse 32, the description of this image reads this way. Uh, the image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. That's from verses 32 and 33 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Passages that you'll want to make sure you get familiar with. So this image with this, uh, this description is uh, is seen by Nebuchadnezzar in a dream and as he sees this image in his dream one of the la- the last thing he sees is this stone this mountain cut without hands that comes and strikes at the feet of the statue bringing it down and this the statue that this 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 mountain then begins to consume the whole earth and so as as Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision he's troubled by it and so he calls his advisors his wise men his uh, you know his soothsayers his you know Uh, spiritually-minded interpreters and this kind of thing. And he sets a challenge before them because he apparently has some question as to the uh, legitimacy of their skills and abilities. And so uh, he calls them together to interpret the dream, and so they're waiting to hear the dream so they can give the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar throws a bit of a hitch in here, and he says, I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. I'm instead going to expect you, soothsayers, uh, wise men, to, um, to tell me both the dream and the interpretation. In other words, tell me what I saw in my head and explain it to me. The point being that if you can tell me what I saw in my mind, I'm more apt to think that you can tell me what it means. In other words, you have some legitimate gifts and skills. Now, the wise men, uh, these, you know, these counselors, they argue with him and say, "Well, no one's ever done that before. You know Tell us the dream. we'll tell you the interpretation, but no one's ever been able to tell you what the dream was before even telling you what it meant and that kind of thing and So they have this little back and forth, and finally the Nebuchadnezzar says, "Well, look, how about I incentivize you a little bit?" Um Either you do this, or i 'm going to kill you and destroy you and make your house a dunghill, and all this kind of thing so so now they 're motivated, but they're still out of luck they can 't do it and so the command goes forth to begin wiping out these uh these counselors. Well, word gets to Daniel and his three friends that the king has made this proclamation, and so Daniel talks to the head uh over him and the rest of, and his friends and the rest of his group. And says, why why is Nebuchadnezzar being so hasty about this? Why don't you give us the night to seek our God about it? We'll pray about it. We'll fast. We'll come before the Lord. And we'll bring the interpretation and, and answer him tomorrow. And so he basically, Daniel, buys time for himself. And apparently, probably, likely, all the rest of these uh, wise men. And uh, so he and his, dan- his friends set themselves to prayer. And uh, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, they uh, their Israeli, Hebrew their Hebrew names, uh, we know them better, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But, um, but Daniel and his three friends get together and they seek the Lord about it. And God tells them what the dream was and what the interpretation was. And so Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he explains to him what he saw. And Nebuchadnezzar is very impressed with this and now gives Daniel an audience. Okay, I, I trust you. Now tell me what it means. And so Daniel explains what Nebuchadnezzar saw and says, look, nobody can interpret dreams except God in heaven and this kind of thing. So in other words, our God is telling you what you need to know. This figures prominently later because Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar seem to have kind of a friendship in their relationship. Then later on, uh, we see Daniel's love for Nebuchadnezzar and is praying for him and such. Nebuchadnezzar, it would seem from chapter four and Nebuchadnezzar's own proclamation and explanation of some of the experiences he had just had seemed to imply that he may have come to faith in the God of Israel. So that being said, um, you know, what God is using Daniel to do is not only to tell us what's coming in the future and tell Nebuchadnezzar, but also to tell us, but also to be a witness and a testimony to Nebuchadnezzar through the giftings that God has given Daniel in interpreting these things. So in any case, um, Daniel explains what the dream is. He says, you saw this image, as it says, this, the, the, the head, the, the shoulders, the belly brass, and brass, and then the legs and such. And then he goes on to explain what it means. He says, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, your glory of your kingdom in that, that God has given you. This is representative of you. However, you are going to be uh, ultimately supplanted by the chest and arms of silver. This would turn out to be the, uh, the Medo-Persian empire that would come later and would ultimately uh, take over the, uh, the, the, you know, sort of the supremacy and that kind of thing. Then after them, as he goes on to say, the, um, the uh, belly and thighs of bronze, This would represent the Greek Empire as they come uh, to the fore. And then ultimately, the legs and the feet, and the feet mixed with iron and clay, uh, this ultimately represents the Romans who come in. And then the Romans ultimately become sort of this odd blend of iron and clay. And so that is the vision that Nebuchadnezzar gets in chapter 2. And so Daniel interprets it, and of course, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, so thrilled that this happened. Uh, that ultimately he, um, uh uh-oh, hold on a second. There we go. Actually, I'll see if I can turn that off for the time being. And um, so Nebuchadnezzar, again, is thrilled to death that this happened. And so he elevates Daniel and his three friends to places of prominence and that kind of thing. Well, Daniel would go on to serve under a number of kings in that part of the world. And so uh, later on in chapter 7, Daniel is now an older man, and uh, uh, he's, he's a bit older, and God gives him a vision, of which essentially is the same vision, but from a very different perspective. Uh, when he um, gets his vision, and this is where chapter 7 comes in, as he gets his vision, he sees not a statue of these various kinds of precious metals and decreasing value, uh, but rather, he sees this vision as being represent, represented by ravenous animals, wild animals, beasts, and this kind of thing, um, which makes sense uh, in, in in a way, because from man's perspective, the kingdoms of this world are intended to be seen as glorious. Nebuchadnezzar, as a matter of fact, later in, in the chapters that follow chapter 2, chapter 3, he, he builds an image of Like the one in his vision, but rather than making out of the various metals that he saw in his vision, he instead makes it entirely of gold. In other words, he's saying, "Well, that may be what God wants to happen: these varying kingdoms succeeding one another, but my kingdom is going to be an everlasting one. So the whole thing is going to be gold. I will be a forever kind of a ruler, sort of a thing, and that leads to God ultimately making Nebuchadnezzar insane." And when he finally comes to, it seems again that he ultimately gets saved. He certainly, at the very least, respects the God of Heaven uh, and, and such. And so, but that's sort of the mindset of the kingdoms of this world, building a society, a kingdom that is glorious and a testimony to the greatness of its leader, or maybe a unified mankind, uh, you know, and this kind of a thing. This is this is sort of man's or a worldly perspective. On the kingdoms of the world and their succession, that would be Nebuchadnezzar's vision. However, Daniel's vision in chapter seven is a is a is taken from a heavenly perspective. Uh, the idea that um, that this is how God sees it; He sees it for what it actually is. Man may think it's glorious, but God says no. It's actually a bunch of wild beasts that are running around trying to establish these kingdoms. Uh, and it is ultimately the Ancient of Days, as he's referred to in Daniel chapter 7. is the king who's going to establish an everlasting kingdom. That At that point, it will become glorious. But prior to his establishing of that kingdom, um, ravenous wild beasts is how heaven sees this. And it's interesting. And I'm going to kind of, you know, having laid this bit of introduction a little bit to Daniel chapter 7, I'm going to kind of bring it in for a landing here. And we'll actually start to look at it next time, I'm realizing But it's good for us to recognize the difference in perspective between the way man tends to see things and the way God tends to see things. Um, When Antichrist establishes his kingdom, uh, he will establish a kind of global unity that is tenuous at best. It's basically established by force. Um, He arrives as a man of peace, but ultimately he sort of, through intrigue and even through military force, does ultimately bring this globalized unity together. Um, and, and it's done so in order to, ra- rather than be a glorious, beautiful thing, it's en- it ends up becoming a rebellion against God. Not ends up like it started differently. It's always been intended by Satan to be this. But whereas the world might see it as a glorious unity in a time of utopia, it actually has an ulterior purpose, and that is to stand against Christ, who will actually bring in what will be a glorious kingdom. But it will require the bringing down of the empires of this world, Uh, And this is what ultimately is the lesson of Daniel's chapters two and seven. Uh, From man's perspective, even though they think it's this beautiful, um, you know, uh, these beautiful kingdoms, it is really the kingdom of the ancient of days, the Lord uh, coming to establish it that will bring in an actual global uh, community that is based in righteousness and is ruled with a rod of iron from Jerusalem and such as, as the scriptures continue to unfold. Daniel chapter 7 is intended to say the same thing. Daniel chapter 7 will be a far more detailed explanation of what's coming than Daniel chapter 2 was. Uh, They essentially tell the same story, but Daniel chapter 7 will have more information that will then help us connect it with passages like Revelation 13 and, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, So that being said, that's where we're headed in our description of this. But some background there to kind of lay the stage or set the stage, lay the groundwork for our look at Daniel chapter 7 as we begin to move further into it. And I think for today, I might have actually gotten in under my 20 minutes. So that's, uh, I think I have finally now hit the mark. So thanks for watching today, and I hope you'll follow along as we continue to make our way through. You know, the reason we're doing this, by the way, is, uh, as I mentioned before, prophecy can tend to be a little bit intimidating for a lot of people and the stuff we're talking about right now going into books like daniel and 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 such uh this is one of those places that sometimes people that that really want to understand these things kind of gloss over because they're not sure where to go to find some understanding Usually, we'll recommend books that can help bring some understanding to it. But sometimes it just helps to have somebody lead us through that and help us sort of get the wheels turning a little bit and start to see uh, how it is that we can, you know, really understand these things. And remember, the point is to understand them, uh, not just from my perspective. But in Daniel chapter seven, we'll see that um, you know Daniel himself asks asks the angel, "What does this mean? What, help me understand." And so understanding is given to him, and therefore to us as well. So, that being said, that's where we're going to be over the next little bit, and I do hope that our studies in uh, eschatology have been a little bit helpful. Um, they certainly are an encouragement, and, uh, intended to be, an, I shouldn't be so bold, they are intended to be an encouragement uh, to those of us who study these things and, and look forward to Christ's coming, but even for those maybe who are scratching their heads trying to figure it out, my hope is that this kind of brings the understanding a little bit more clearly. It, it makes it a little less intimidating. And it maybe even encourages you to read these passages and begin to start doing your homework on it yourself and begin to start building for yourself your understanding of these things. Um, You know, uh, I'm glad to, and I'm very thankful for the opportunities that we can share these things, but really, nothing uh, is more thrilling than seeing a believer take their Bible for themselves, and with a sense of understanding of, of some basic principles of interpreting Scripture, uh, begin to start diving in and establish, you know, uh, establishing their own daily routine of, of studying the Scripture in order to learn some of these, uh, some of these things. So uh, I'm really, really glad and excited that we can be doing this together. So uh, thanks for joining. Hope you'll join again next time as we continue. But until then, may the Lord bless and keep you, make His face shine upon you, and be gracious to you. And give you peace forever, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that you bring us in understanding things that are going on in the world around us today. And we pray, Lord, for those that maybe are a little intimidated looking at these things, that this will provide an opportunity for some of that um, some of that trepidation to go to the wayside, and to uh, and, and to rather encourage a, a full throttle uh, um, diving into the scripture uh, with this with a desire to understand and also the knowledge that they actually can understand these things. So thank you, Father, for this. I thank you for those teachers that have been of such benefit to myself and others over the years. People have done so much ho- homework and legwork in, in, in helping bring light to some of these passages. Father, there are so many that have gone before us that we can be very, very thankful for. And, uh, and so thank you for the gift of great teachers of the past that have helped bring us to where our understanding to where it is now but father ultimately the holy spirit is the teacher and so we pray that he would guide us through these things as well and he called to our mind things that the scriptures speak of to help us fill in the blanks and build the picture and put the pieces of the puzzle together that we might have understanding that uh, that it would truly be unveiled to us that we would we would get a clear sense of what is uh, is being spoken of And help us to then take that knowledge and begin to consider whether or not the things we're seeing today maybe fit into those things and how they might. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you and thank you for the days in which we're living. We thank you for the great promises in your word of what is to come. And we are thankful as your children, your sons and daughters, to know that we get to be part of those things. And, uh, uh, Father, truly, you have made us recipients of great and precious promises, things that we don't deserve. But Lord, through your grace and because of your love and just your graciousness and your mercy, you've invited us to come and to partake. So thank you for these things, Lord. We long to see you. We long for Jesus to come and and get us. We thank you that the Holy Spirit seals us till that day. And we long to see you face to face and be before your throne and worship alongside of our brothers from every tribe, tongue, and nation, glorifying you and blessing you. So Lord, thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.